Good morning and welcome to Grace. I'm Pastor Ryan. Today, we finish up our series beginning back before Christmas entitled, Let There Be Light. However, today's message is not just the end of one series, but rather the stepping off point for a new series that zooms in on the metaphor of light as used by Jesus to describe his followers as the light of the world. Thanks for joining us in this study as we see how God has designed the light of our transformed lives to be evidenced before a watching world through our good works. I can do a backflip. Rushing through my illustration here already. It's easy. All you do is you gotta you, you gotta get your uh, kind of momentum going backwards, and and as you jump up in the air, you pull your knees up. It's awesome. Just doing a backflip. You guys want to see? Right, right, right off the stage here. Where's nine one one first? No, I mean it's easy. It's really easy to do. You you wouldn't believe once you learn how to do it, and it's it's fantastic. In fact, I think. You know, uh, you're, you're watching a football game, and when some of those running backs score a touchdown, you know what they, they I think at the end of my sermon from now on, that's how I'm going to celebrate. Just, you ready? Oh, my. You know, it's really not hard to do at all. It's fantastic. It's, it's not hard to do at all. <clears throat> you, know, I, you know, you immediately said exactly what I was hoping you were going to say. Like, let's see it. Let's see it. Show me now, right? Because, um, yeah, I'll believe it when I... See it, right? Well, um, we have, as Christians, uh, we have the ability to take advantage of this human glitch. It's a glitch, by the way, in humans. We, as people, think that we can only believe the things that we see, right? You've heard the, the phrase, seeing is believing. Yeah, I mean, we, we, uh, we have a lot of phrases where even this becomes something that is kind of bewilderment. We say things like, my eyes are playing tricks on me, or I can't believe what I just Saw, right? Because that's the glitch in humanity. You remember the story of Thomas, poor Thomas, the disciple who's willing to go and die with Jesus in Jerusalem. He gets the moniker Doubting Thomas. Poor guy was more zealous than the others, but he wanted to see. And Jesus says these words, right? Blessed are those who have not seen, but have still believed. So even Jesus recognizes there's this glitch in human nature where we tend to believe the things that we see. We can take advantage of that. As Christians, we can use that to our advantage. And that is actually something that God has designed within his people such that we would be vessels, lighthouses, beacons, megaphones, speaking to the world around us to come and find peace, to find wholeness, to find hope, because they see something undeniable. They see a change that is wrought within the life of their neighbor, their family member, someone who they know. And they, for not for lack of trying, that they don't want to believe it, but they, they see it. So it's undeniable. Um, we had a passage a couple weeks back where we, we were in 1 Peter. Uh, we were dealing with this verse, if you can recall, back during the Capitol riots. Remember that? And I was trying to impress upon the church the importance of recognizing that we belong to a citizenship in heaven. And there, there's a difference between being an American Christian and a Christian who lives in America. Give me an amen if you remember that. Talk about that. Yeah. This is the passage we were in. And I, I stopped a little bit short from getting all the way into verse 12. But let me just start again in verse 11 that we get the context here. Peter writes, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and aliens, the old NIV says um, uh, aliens instead of exiles, to abstain from sinful desires which wage against your soul. 
Now, what kind of life uh, would, would be modeled if the Christian said, oh, I believe in Jesus, I'm a transformed human, but then they go on living and talking the same way they always did? We have a word for that. It starts with an H. Does anyone know what that is? They're called a, yeah, hypocrisy. They're, they're, they're called a hypocrite. So here we're told, look, if you truly belong to another land, live as though you belong to that land. Continuing here, verse 12. Live such good lives among the pagans. So pagans here representative of unbelievers. I don't believe in Jesus. That superstition, you kidding me? I don't believe it. Watch what they love to do. That though they accuse you of doing wrong, is the world going to do that to Christians? Is the, is the world going to oppose the lifestyle and values that Christians have? Because we seek to follow Jesus as our God and not ourselves as our God? Yes, absolutely. They will accuse the Christians of the ones who are wrong. In fact, I don't know if you saw just this week the Huffington Post. Just shoot your hand up if you saw this in the news. I'm sad to deliver this news to you. Huffington Post reported uh, that the problem with the Capitol riots was that the Christians are being trained with Christian education. That was what the blame was. So the lifestyle that's created through homeschooling and through Christian education produces those who riot on the Capitol. Now, universally, we as Christians should recognize that type of behavior is inconsistent with what is modeled before us by Jesus Christ. So we're not, we're not in agreement with that. But what does the world do? It, whose fault is it? What does the world do? It's your fault. This ain't something new. Uh, back in the year 60, 66, uh, uh, 65, 66, I, I have to check my history book again. Emperor Nero was looking for someone to put blame on the burning of Rome. Huge fire. Worst one that they had in years and years. Killed many people. Everybody's looking to the government to say, Who, who's to blame for this fire? Like, burn our businesses down. And do you know who Nero used as the scapegoat? He picked one group of people who were different than all the others. The Christians. That's the same time Peter's writing this. He says, live good lives. Abstain from sinful desires. Live, live good lives among the pagans that even though they accuse you of doing wrong, what will they do? They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. Because what? Seeing is Unbelievable, right? I, I'm against everything they stand for, but man, those Christians, <laughs> they sure do help the poor. I got, got to give them that. Man, those Christians, they, they sure do reach out to those who are homebound. Man, those Christians, they sure are caring for the infirmed and the sick and the dying. I hate them just the same, but oh man, they, I can't deny the good works that they do. And ultimately, this becomes an act of evangelism that we'll cover here in a little bit. Uh, what I want us to see is that this glitch is something that not only can we take advantage of, hear me now, God has designed it this way. God's designed it this way. When we started this series, Let There Be Light, we were, we were all the way back beginning of December. Um, I don't know if you remember, but back then I said... Uh, the, the subtitle here, Bearing Witness to a Miracle, is actually going to have a dual meaning to it. Because back in December, the, the picture for Let There Be Light was the message of the, of the gospel being given to the shepherds. That there is now peace with mankind through the Christ child that's born in Bethlehem. And what do the shepherds do as they're given this insight? They say, let's, let's go see. And let's bear witness to the miracle of the 
of the coming of Jesus Christ. There's another meaning for this, though. To, to bear witness doesn't just mean you see it happen. In fact, we use this term in our courts of law. What do you call the person on the stand? They're called a, a witness, an, an, an eyewitness, right? And it's not just the fact that they saw it, but now they, they're giving testimony. They're giving evidence to that which they've seen. And so today we conclude this series, but really it dovetails into the next one that we're looking at, which is going to be called Do Good. And that's the theme for 2021 here at Grace. So I'm going to, I'm going to say that again. I'm going to repeat it again in the message just so you hear it. In this year, 2021, we are going to focus on good works. And we're going to do so so that our lives evidence the transformation of the gospel. So the world says, yeah, you a Christian? I'll believe it when I see it. And do you know what we're going to say? Challenge accepted. We're going to show them. And we're going to ask that the Spirit be the, the one that directs us to that end such that we bear witness to a miracle. Not here the miracle of Jesus being born, but the miracle of a transformed life. A heart that is not what it once was, but a heart that now has been claimed ownership by Jesus Christ. So with that, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5. I have been so excited to preach this passage. Uh, this is a three-hour sermon that I'm going to cram into two hours. So. <laughs> no, we're, we'll, we'll get through it as quick as we can, but you just need to know there's so much good stuff with this. It's like going to a buffet that has all your favorite food, but your stomach is only so big. You, anyone else know what that feels like? I don't even know what that feels like, but... I just want to keep eating, but there's just not enough room. That's a little bit what this morning is going to be like. So we're going to pack as much in as we can. Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, 14, 15, and 16. So four short verses. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to, I'm going to read those now. Here we go. Jesus says, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Jesus gives two illustrations here for the follower, of, uh, the, for his disciple, that they would know what it is they are supposed to be characterized by, salt and light. Very briefly, uh, these, these two metaphors would probably uh, be a little more um, poignant back in Jesus' day just for their, uh, their necessity. Today, uh, light is ubiquitous. It's everywhere. It's easy. You flip a switch, no problem. Wasn't the case in Jesus' day. Um, additionally, salt, pick up as much as you need, not a problem, right? Um, you don't use salt the way they did back then because you have refrigerators and freezers. So both of these illustrations need a little bit of contextual information so that we can at least resonate with what the first uh, people who heard Jesus say this, what it is that they heard. Uh, salt has a lot of different uses. Um, even in this text, you'll see that... Uh, if it loses its saltiness, what would they do? They'd throw it out so that it would pave the roads. You could use salt as a, uh, uh, as a kind of filler within um, roadways that would kind of 
produce a nice hardened flat path could be used for that. Um, it could also be used as a weed killer. If you wanted to uh, poison your neighbor's field, you just threw some salt in it. Uh, that's not a nice thing to do, but yeah, this is what salt does, kills the plants. Uh, predominantly salt flavors, right? If you've ever eaten something needing a little bit of salt, right? you're thankful to have salt, right? It adds flavor to whatever it is that it has. How, how, do these, how do these metaphors translate to what Jesus says? He says, you are the salt of the earth. D- does he mean that we're to be weed killers? Does it mean that we're supposed to have a nice paved path for people to walk on? Does it mean that we're supposed to flavor the world? Uh, a couple other uses, uh, it purifies. Salt being brilliantly white um, is, is a substance that would purify other things. Uh, specifically, it would disinfect. So you could use it in a wound. Salt kills bacteria. Um, it adds value. In fact, many times uh, Roman soldiers were actually paid with salt instead of money. Because that's how valuable salt was. It was used as a currency. Uh, you've heard the phrase, You're, they're not worth their salt. Have you heard that before? That, that's where that comes from. If you didn't work to the specs that you were supposed to, you wouldn't get paid or you would get paid the salt that you should have. But you didn't earn it. You didn't deserve it. Uh, salt also cleans. Uh, you could use it as an abrasive unit to help scrub with. Uh, if you've ever had a, um, a baked on grease or something like that on a pot that you can't clean, put a little salt on there and it'll help to... Uh, as an abrasive to clean with. Uh, But none of those, I believe, are what Jesus means here. I think he means the other use of salt. Most common in that day was as a preservative. The thing that salt does is it stops the rot that's going to happen to meat. Now, incidentally, all these other things that I've mentioned are, are some ways wrapped up in this concept of preserving But commentators love to think of all the different ways that salt could be used. I believe, and in fact, this is in agreement with them, that what Jesus has in mind is that the role that salt plays when he says you are the salt of the earth is that you are placed here such that you will help to prevent the rot, the decay that is creeping in with the world. Now, the world's been going uh, bad for quite a long time. But God's people are put here so that we help prevent it from becoming as bad as it could be. i got a great story to share with you on this, and, and it's in our Bibles. I, I would love it if you could turn there, and let's read it together. It's going to be in Genesis chapter 18. So hold your spot here in Matthew. Turn to Genesis 18. And just as an example of the way in which the people of God, those who righteously follow the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, act as for a community as a kind of salt or preservative that helps stop the rot and the decay. Genesis chapter 18, we're going to start in verse 20. Uh, The context here is revolving around Abram as he is encountered with uh, three divine beings who come and meet him at his tent. Uh, Two of them are angels. The other is suspected to be uh, a pre-incarnate Christophany, or, or Jesus himself before the incarnation, um, in some places in the Old Testament referred to as the angel of the Lord, but here having divine abilities and characteristics. These three guys are talking with Abram, and then two of them leave to go to a city, a wicked city, the city of Sodom. We pick up the story here in verse 20, Genesis eighteen twenty. Then the Lord said, 
The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. The men turned away and went toward Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him. So verse 23, Abraham's doing some thinking now. He knows these angels and the Lord are going to bring condemnation against these cities. He kind of scratches his beard a little bit. He starts thinking, you know, maybe, maybe God hasn't thought of something here first. Verse 23, Abraham approached him and said, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What, what, what if there's 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will you not, the judge of all the earth, do right? <laughs> Who else thinks that's a little gutsy to say to God? I'd be, if I was there, I'd be, I'd be kind of doing one of these to Abraham, you know. Careful what you're saying there, pal. Uh, he can, uh, the Lord said, verse 26, If I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham spoke up again. Uh, now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I'm nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of the righteous is five less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city because of five people? If I find 45 there, he said, I will not destroy it. Once again, he spoke to him. What if only 40 are found there? What's Abraham doing here? He's, he's trying to talk God down. Again, this is a gutsy guy. Watch, watch this, verse 30. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if there are only 30 can be found there? He answered, I will not do it if I find 30. Abraham said, now that I have been as bold to speak to the Lord, what if only 20 can be found there? He said, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only 10 can be found there? City of Sodom, by estimates, is thought to be 75,000 to 175,000 people. That's, that's been estimated. Those estimates come based upon the, the scriptural record of the, the size of the armies that go against war. Uh, so if, if you have so many, uh, so many troops going against a city, it gives you an indication as to how big that city is, though we're not certain as to how many people there were. Um, upwards to a half a million people thought to be in the five cities of the plain. So Sodom and Gomorrah and the rest of the surrounding neighborhood. And what is it that God says that he will do for the sake of how many? For the sake of 10 little grains of salt. I won't destroy that whole city. Because God's people are a preservative. God has designed it such that those who follow him become his agents that resist the decay that's going to be creeping into the world. So this is what it means to be salt. Uh, the, the second illustration we have in verse 14 says that you are the light of the world. Uh, light here has not like salt a, a negative emphasis. So, so remember, salt is stopping, right? That, that's, the, that's the role of salt. It's to prevent 
decay. It has a negative influence, not negative meaning bad, but negative meaning it's trying to slow something down. That's what I mean by negative. But light has the opposite. Light has a positive influence in that it illumines the darkness. And this is to be understood perhaps both accurately to the metaphor that it's literally illumination all the way to the farthest end of that metaphor, that it's the illumination of truth. It's the illumination of God's will. It's the illumination of that which is wrong. You are the light of the world. One other thought on this, that as Jesus is speaking, his followers uh, and the crowds would have heard immediately, understood immediately, is that as he talks about the light, he says in verse 14, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. Do you know what city maybe he might be referring to? As soon as you talk about a city on a hill, everybody there is going to immediately think of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the city on a hill. Anywhere you go from Jerusalem, you go down. Not meaning south, but down in elevation. And anywhere up that you're traveling, you're moving towards the city of Jerusalem. That that God had planned for his city, Zion, Jerusalem, to be a beacon of light to all the nations. Because a city on a hill can't be hidden. So light positively illuminates that which is dark and salt negatively resists the decay that's coming from the world. All right, are we clear on that? We're going to let's let me walk through some observations then from this text. First is this. The world is going bad and is in darkness. So, so if, if the people of God are called to be salt and light, then implied in that would be the inverse reality. If you're to be salt, that means decay is present. The world is under decay. And if you're to be light, that means the world is in darkness. Um, you might be thinking, though, well, it's getting better, though, ain't it? I mean, think, think about years ago. We used to have wars and those tribes where they would rip out people's hearts. I mean, my goodness, the world was worse back, back in the day. It's better now, isn't it? Hopefully you, you don't think that. Hopefully you, you're not like an ostrich with your head in the sand. Uh, it's actually continuing to get worse, racing with speed at becoming worse, except for the increase of information. We, we have had um, an uh, explosion of information in our world today. And in that sense, there's good that comes along with the bad of that. But here's the reality. It's not that the world is getting better, but that the world has gotten better at being bad. Um, it was a it was a while ago. I was cleaning some fish and uh, threw the fish guts in the trash, and then uh, forgot to take the trash out. And walked into the house, and I mean, like a like a slap in the face was like, "What is? Who died in here?" I mean, you guys know what that smells like? Fish guts. It's the worst. Um, but instead of dealing with the trash right away, it actually didn't occur to me. I thought it was my son's shoes is what I thought it was. Uh, or a, a mouse had died or something like that. Um, I, I went on to something, maybe got a phone call, but I do remember um, after, after a little while, I didn't smell it anymore. I didn't smell it. Originally, it struck me offensive, right? But then I forgot about it. Uh, went outside and then came back in. And guess what? got reminded of it again. Now, now, what happened when I was inside? Did the smell go away? What happened? Yeah, I just became nose deaf. 
Right? I, I, I just got used to it. Folks, this is what's going on in our world. It's not that the world is getting better. It has gotten better at being bad. The evilness of, of the human heart has been accepted in a lot of ways. This is where we need a transformation. We need a transformed heart so that we become sensitive to God's leading to recognize even because you, you get the big ones, right? Y'all get the big ones. It's those little subtle sins, those internal ones of pride and judgment, those internal ones of, that are hidden that nobody knows about. Those are the ones that the world has made opportunity for flourishing in our world. We're not getting better. We're rotting. It's in darkness. Number two, the church is the only hope for this world. I was really grateful in the song that we were singing. Um, the, the end line uh, says that we are your church. We are the hope on earth. Do you remember that line that, that we're singing? It was the last part of the song, Build Your Kingdom Here. And it is absolutely true, drawn directly from this passage, drawn directly from this text. If you look with me again here in verse thir- 13, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? Here's what Jesus means by this. There, there's no repair. There's no plan B. You, you are the ones who are, who are to be making change. You are the agents of, per, um, uh, what's the word again? Pre- preservation, not perseverance. Preservation for the rot that's happening. That's you. That's God's people. That's the church. If you lose your saltiness, there's no plan B. There's no second option for this. You are the hope on earth. Now, careful with that. You don't want to think too high and mighty of, hey, God's lucky to have me. Uh, I'm the hope of earth. Uh, Tap the brakes there. Uh, It's actually Jesus in you. Yet not I, but Christ in me that produces the hope on earth. But this is the entirety of the good news of the gospel. He has made you agents that work for him. And it is through our obedience to God that we are those who stop the rot and bring the light. Um, he, he says in verse 14, a city on a hill can't be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. I, I want you to see it's singular too. Uh, this isn't that there are other lights. Look at me in verse 14. You are the light. It doesn't say you're one of the lights. You're the light. So not only are you the salt, and if it loses its saltiness, I got no plan B, but there's no other light. In our bathroom at, at, at our place in town, uh, there's no windows. It's, it's upstairs. It's got one side of the, uh, the, the rooftop slanted on it and, and no windows. So it, sometimes, uh, additionally, the door doesn't always close. You guys know how bathrooms work. Door doesn't always close, right? And if I'm walking by, I'm always trying to turn lights off, right? I'm always trying to turn lights off. You'll find out real quick if someone was in the bathroom when you just reached in and flipped the switch off because pitch black in the bathroom. The sound you hear is, hey, I'm in here. There's no other light. There's no other light. If, if that's you in the bathroom and the light gets turned off, you're in trouble because you can't reach the switch from the toilet. So 
that's a little bit what we have going on on earth right now. Uh, there, there is a, a rot that's happening. There's a darkness that exists. You are the light. <laughs> that, that ought to be a little empowering and a little bit humbling for you today to be reminded of. If the salt loses its saltiness, there's nothing to make it salty again. You're the only shot. There's no other lights. This is the light. So the church is the only hope for this world through Christ. Number three, God expects you to shine. He says a city on a hill. Notice, he doesn't say shouldn't be hidden. He doesn't say might not be hidden. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. What this means for you as a believer and a follower of Jesus Christ is that you are intended to stand out. You are intended to shine. It's expected of you to shine. That is why you are here. I remember when I was young, they had a a youth event in the UP called Fire Up, Fire UP. Um, And I remember our chaperone that we had for that, uh, was coming from our church, had given us all shirts um, that were bright pink, like neon pink. And I remember just feeling very embarrassed to have to wear these. Uh, As an adult now, I know why you would give children bright pink shirts in the middle of a crowd. Why would you do that? So you can keep track of them. That is right. The whole reason that you're wearing the bright pink is so that you stand out. It's exactly what Jesus has done for you in the giving of his spirit. Do you you have the spirit of God? Yes or no? Yeah. Then he intends you to stand out. You're expected to shine. That's the whole idea behind it. That's the whole purpose of it. When, uh, When we were in the... Caribbean, I was changing a tire and Micah was about four years old and I had him holding the flashlight for me because we didn't have much of a workshop to work in at that time and it was dark out. And I remember this great little helper, my four-year-old helper, I had to keep telling him, shine the light here, shine it here. And then after about a minute, he'd be doing this again with his hand, trying to see through it, shining it around. Hey, right here, right here. Sticking it to his cheek. Looking through his shirt at it, right? I mean, that's what four-year-olds do, right? There's a purpose behind God's expectation for you to shine. There's a place and a direction. There's a use behind it. We got to be very careful that we're not acting like little kids with what he's given us, but that we're making good stewards of it. Nobody lights a lamp, hides it. Nobody lights a lamp and puts a bushel over it. Instead, they set it up high so it gives light everywhere. God expects you to shine. Number, number four. This one's an important one. This is one that uh, takes a little bit of understanding from our text and actually leads into number five. So I'm going to put five up here as well. Four and five go together. Four is this. The light that Jesus is referring to as a metaphor here for the Christian is their transformed life. So, so what, what is it that's shining? Well, it's your life that is shining. It's a transformed life that is shining. That's what God has intended to shine. Uh, when I was, <clears throat> again, working in the Caribbean, I would go and play basketball with the local guys. I was 19 years old, so a bunch of us teenagers would go up there. I've used this illustration before. Um, when I first started playing with them, not only were they just tearing each other down all the time, but they were cussing all the time. 
I mean, just imagine a bunch of teenagers with no parental supervision on a basketball court with their shirts off at 10 p.m. I mean, they're just carrying on any which way they want to. Now, I, I don't curse. I have no reason to. Not that I don't get frustrated sometimes. I have to bite my tongue. But yeah, I've, I've learned that that's not a helpful way to handle my frustration. Do you know something? Not a single time in the months that I would spend playing with those, those guys every, every night, not a single time did I say, hey, could you guys cut that language out? Hey, I, I, I'm a little offended at the way you guys talk to them. Not a single time did I say that. Not one time did I say, you, do you kiss your mother with that mouth? Like, you know. Not one time did I shame them or ask them to stop swearing. Do you know what I did? I just didn't swear. And after like a couple weeks, guess who also stopped swearing? That whole team. How, how did that happen? What, what was it? that I did, that caused this transformation now on the court. Did, did everybody suddenly get along playing basketball, lo- loving one another? No, we're, they're all still equally frustrated, but they saw a life. They saw a life transformed, and it was a light that shined. And, it, and for them, it helped reorient them to a better way. The, the fifth here then talks about God's design for this. What's the purpose of a transformed life? It's just for me. It's for me and my Bible study time for me only. No. Your life has been transformed so that it will produce good works. Because a transformed life is evidenced by good works. I have to, I have to really make sure the church hears this. If you, if you do not have flowing from your life evidence of good works you do not have any evidence of an inward change. There are many people going to church today who are not saved. They they could call themselves Christians. Well, I've been going to church my whole life. Or I'm a Christian, but there's, there's nothing to show from it. They have a faith, but their faith is, as James calls, dead. It's a dead faith. In fact, here's the passage from James chapter two. He's talking about the prostitute Rahab and her faith in the word of those who came from the people of God. He says this in chapter 2 in the same way. Was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Now, there is one point of clarification that I shouldn't have to make, but I'm going to make anyways, just to cover my basis. You need to make sure that there's no confusion that you are reconciled to God because of your good deeds. How many of you have good deeds before you're saved? No. Before you're saved, every good deed that you do brings glory to who? Me. That makes it not a good deed because you're bringing glory for yourself. But once you become a Christian, it is, as the Apostle Paul says, he, uh, he will increase because I decrease. I, I am not. Pe- people want to pat me on the back. No, it's not me. I've told you guys before about the man in St. Martin that I was teaching. He picked me up from the airport. His name was Carl Cooner, 88 years old. And uh, at the end of my time, at the end of my two weeks teaching there, I, I, I said to Carl, I said, Carl, you're a good man. And I got out of the car and he grabbed my shirt and pulled me back in. He said, Ryan, I am not good, man. 
Jesus Christ is good. He wouldn't even let me give him that tiny little compliment because he thought I'd be stealing away from the glory that belonged to God. The Christian can do good works because they return all glory to God. And if you don't have good works, there's no evidence to say that there's a change on the inside. Are you guys with me on this? Or are we on the same page? Because I'm going to have a whole Sunday morning where we uncover this a little bit deeper. But this is the point we have to hold to. A transformed life is evidenced by good deeds. And that moves us to the last one, number six. Good deeds are God's design for reaching the world. <clears throat> good deeds are God's design for reaching the lost, those who are in the world. I want you to see this back in our text. Look with me again in verse 16. He says, in the same way, let your light shine before... Are you there with me? Everybody with me? Give me an amen if you're with me there. Verse 16. Here we go. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and then do what? What? What in the world? You, you, you mean to tell me that the world is going to see my good deeds and then somehow give glory to God? <laughs> That's what Jesus says. Do you know how that works? It means that the world gets transformed. The world encounters the message of the gospel lived and they can't deny it. Do you remember our passage here, First Peter? Let's return to it one more time. Live as strangers and aliens, right? Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and look at the result. And glorify God. God has made a design, a system, a program, a strategy for reaching the world. And he has decided to do that through your good works, through your good deeds, because that brings within your neighbor a sense of trust that then allows you to encounter them with the truth of the gospel. They will glorify God. They will praise God because they will come to faith, having seen undeniably a life transformed. Man, seeing is believing. Here's, I, I, I love the metaphor that Phil gave us this morning. The compass, right? Does the compass ever change, True North? It's always pointing. It's always pointing. It's always pointing. The problem is, people in the world have got all other interferences with their compasses, right? Without the Spirit of God, their compass is pointing to, ah, vacation. That's what I got to be working for. Ah, uh, uh, promotion. That's what I got to be working for. Ah, uh, my own pleasure and satisfaction. That's what I got to be working for. The world's compasses are buzzing every which way. And every time some new little gadget comes out or some whatever the world talks about on the media, what's their compass do? Whoop, zings this way. This is what we're focusing on. Whoop, this way. This is what I'm focusing on now. You and I, by the Spirit's leading should have true north locked in that we know we serve God. And then do you know what your good, your good deeds do? Your good deeds act like those little magnets that Phil helped the kids to see this morning, also pointing true north. Are you tracking with this illustration? I was thinking of this just as Phil was talking because that's actually God's design. Your good works are like little magnets all pointing north. That as the world looks and sees the Christians, they don't see one Christian acting this way and another Christian acting this way. They see continuity that all Christians' good works point to glorify God. And so that that is part of God's design such that the world may know. He sees your good deeds. They see your good works. 
and they will glorify God. Or as Jesus says here in Matthew 5, praise your father who is in heaven. All right. So what do we do with this application? I I totally forgot one of my uh, illustrations this morning. Um, Here's number one. You have to get out of the salt shaker. I was going to bring a little salt shaker. That was going to be awesome. I was going to have it up here and use it as illustration. I forgot it this morning. You know what a salt shaker looks like, right? What, What good is the salt in the shaker? What's that for? Does nothing. Has no purpose. The salt is worthless as long as it stays in the shaker. That's kind of what we got going on right now. Right? This little building that we're in, it's like our salt shaker. Not, not a lot going on for uh, being the salt of the earth so long as we're all crowded up in here. So what do we need to do? If we're going to be useful, we got to get out of our comfort zones. We got to get out into the world. This is exactly what uh, Jesus says. John chapter 17, he's praying for Christians. He says, I have given them your word. So he's praying to the father for you. I have given them your word and the world has hated them for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I'm not of the world. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, get out of the salt shaker. I have sent them into the world. Listen, God has a work for you as a purpose. Your good deeds are his design to reach your neighbor. He wants you to go and be in the world. Do you have, do you have non-Christian friends? I hope you do. I really hope you do. If you can't think of any non-Christian Friends, that's going to be a challenge we're going to look at here. That we, that we find people who we rub shoulders with that don't yet know Jesus. Um, if you don't have any of those, you're not seasoning anything. You're not preventing rot from anywhere. God has a purpose for you to be in the world. That's exactly what Jesus just said. I've sent them into the world. Number two is this. You need to devote yourselves to doing good. You need to be devoted to doing good. This is not optional. This is not, if I get around to it, this is not after I'm finished with the show I'm watching. This, this is, I'm devoted to it. This is, this is why I'm here. Uh, we have this passage that Wendy read for us already, Titus 3.8. Here's a trustworthy saying. It, by the way, anytime Paul says that in the pastoral epistles, you need to just be like, I need to get my pen and underline this. This is important. This is a trustworthy saying. I want to stress you, uh, and I want you to stress these things. So that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everybody. So there you go. That's not, that's not too hard, right? Except it is. Get out of the salt shaker and be devoted to doing good. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take five minutes to close here by talking about what we talked about yesterday. We, we had our ministry leadership team meeting right, right here in the sanctuary. And uh, to as many of our church leaders that came out to that event, it was a time once more where we could pray with one another, where we could strategize with one another about the unique responsibilities we, we each have in ministry. And most of all, we can all get on the same page for what we're going to try to do this year. Do you guys remember what 2020 was? The theme for 2020 was all about the kids, right? It's all about every ministry, every person together. We're going to keep our generation growing up in the church from becoming the final generation in the church, right? And that's not going to happen 
uh, unless we all are on board with it. Right? That was last year. By the way, that continues. We're still doing that. All right? We still need all hands on deck when it comes to reaching the kids. This year, our theme is, for 2021, do good. That's not hard to forget. That's easy to memorize. Do good. A year of showing the love of Jesus. This passage from Galatians 6, Paul writes, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. So this theme for 2021 uh, is, is do good. And I'm going to introduce something that I'm going to bring back something we introduced years ago, which is our grace excursions. You guys remember this? It's been a while. 2020 just did a number on us, didn't it? I mean, I, I didn't have any of these last year. Uh, a grace excursion, just to remind you, is coming off of the theme of like a cruise, a cruise ship. If you've ever been on a cruise, uh, you, you kind of make a big loop and you come back, right? But on that loop, You've got little excursions that you can take, like this little, hey, go and check out this island or go and learn how to hit a golf ball here, whatever it is, right? There's little excursions you can do. Same idea. We're in the ship here in Segola, right, at Grace together, working for the glory of God. But every now and then, we're going to try to focus intensely on one little subject for the growth and betterment of our spiritual formation. And for us, it's going to be, I'm just labeling it three, two, one. Because that's easy to remember. All right. So our grace excursion for the next 40 days and then carrying into 2021. Three, two, one. Here's what they mean. Three means I'm going to ask you to start praying for three people. I feel like I heard this from some preacher uh, in California somewhere. I forget who. I tried to look it up yesterday, but it it was coming back to me from hearing quite quite a while ago. And I was like, yeah, this is what we're going to do at Grace. I I want to challenge you to pray specifically for three people. I think it'd be great if you picked one person from your family, one person from your church, and then one non-Christian. And just make a commitment to say, I am going to pray for these three people. That's what the three stands for. Two is you and somebody else. I'm going to challenge you, all of you to find a prayer partner. Uh, I can make, I'm going to make some recommendations on that, but you, you do what you need to do in that. My, my first recommendation is don't make it your spouse. Mm. I already had it done. Now I got to find one. Yes, that's the idea. My challenge to you is you find a prayer partner from our church that I, I would challenge you not to make it someone from, an, some of you have prayer partners of friends, right? From other churches. That's great. Keep those. My challenge is that you make a prayer partner from somebody here at Grace. So you're going to have to talk to somebody and ask them, hey, you want to be my pastor asked to do this thing? You, 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 want, to, you want to be my prayer partner? That's, that's my challenge to you. So, so now there's two of you. And the idea is this prayer partner is somebody that's going to hold you accountable to be praying for your three people. And now we get to our one. Choose one person and start doing good works that they would come to faith. Now, you might already be like, Got it. I know exactly who that is. Or you might be sitting here being like, I don't have any idea who that is. So this is, this is why we need a prayer partner. This is why we're going to do it as an excursion. This is why we're going to take 40 days and intentionally ask God to show us who this is. Because here's the whole goal. I want to thank you guys for listening so close so far, but don't let me lose you right now. This is, this, this is me sharing with the whole church the plan for 2021 and 2022. And I've been personally preparing and praying for this for three years, excited to get our church to do this. 
We are weak at grace when it comes to evangelism. So if I were to give us a grade, if I were to compare where churches should be at when it comes to evangelizing the lost, we do a lot of really, really good events. We do a lot of really good um, outreach events. But when it comes to personally evangelizing the lost, we're weak on it. Not that we're inept, but we need to grow in it. We need training. We need to learn. We need to work at it. So 2021 is going to be starting the process through good works to build some relational credibility with somebody who we in 2022 are going to share the good news with and share the gospel with. So we're going to spend this year stretching and lifting and working on our spiritual formation to get better at personal evangelism. We're going to evidence that through good works so that in 2022, we have to build a bigger building or do something because we're going to have so many new people Join with us. I can't do this alone. I can't grow a church. The church grows a church. Where's CJ? What is it? Model for community meal? Everyone? Each one reach one. one. We're stealing that. That's going to be Grace's theme uh, in 2022. Each one reach one. But that's that's what the one is doing here. And in doing so... We will be doing exactly what this theme has been saying. We will be bearing witness to the miracle. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. 